Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Jack Baca, pastor of the Village Church, and I welcome you to this eighth lesson in our 10-lesson series as we look at the New Testament book of Revelation. Today we're looking at Revelation 17 through 20 in the week of November 1st. Again, let's try to place ourselves within the larger context of Revelation as we study these few chapters. Chapters 4 through 18 of Revelation are the main series of visions that Christ gave to John. These visions illustrate the terrible woes and suffering and problems that are going to fall upon the world as a prelude to the final defeat of all evil. That defeat is assured because of Jesus' victory that's already won through his death and resurrection. Chapters 19 through 22 are visions then about the final redemption and restoration of God's kingdom, especially as we see the establishment of the holy city of God, the, the new Jerusalem. And so let's begin to look more closely now at chapters 17 and 18. In these chapters, we see the final act, if you will, the final scene in this great conflagration, this great, um, amazing uh, series of events and, and pictures that represent the final fall of all evil. And it's pictured especially in terms of the fall of Babylon. Now, of course, Babylon has significant meaning for uh, the ancient Jews, especially. It was into Babylon that the Jewish exiles were taken when the southern kingdom of Israel, of uh, Judah, was finally defeated uh, in the early uh, 500s before Jesus. Babylon represented for the Jews especially, and now the Jewish Christians, everything that was evil and wrong about the world, everything that would destroy the plan and purpose of God, as well as destroy God's people. Now Christ has given John this vision of the fall of Babylon. But of course, that Babylon from 600 years earlier uh, is long gone. So what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about Rome. Now, let's remember that in the opening chapters of Revelation, uh, the first three chapters, we have a discussion uh, about Christ's message to earthly cities, actual cities that existed, Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, Laodicea, and the churches that existed in those cities. In these middle chapters, then, we have Christ addressing the evil city, the city of Babylon, Rome itself, and then, of course, everything by extension in the Roman Empire. In the last chapters of Revelation, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see about how God restores his city, the heavenly city, the perfect habitation for all of humanity and all of God's people in the New Jerusalem. Let's focus even more now on chapter 17. John is taken to the wilderness in this great series of visions that he has. The wilderness 
is a place where God's people have special interactions with God, where they get a perspective and learn new things about God. Moses went out into the wilderness. Remember, Jesus himself went out into the wilderness. So John is now taken into the wilderness because he's going to learn some very important truths about the nature of all things and what's going on in the history of his own time towards the end of the first century. John has this vision that Christ gives to him of Babylon and Rome. He sees a woman on a beast. Now remember that as we study Revelation, sometimes the edges of the images get blurred. Sometimes there is an inexactitude, we will say. Things are not, do not necessarily fit perfectly together. It's again like we're seeing a huge painting with many different scenes, and one scene spills over into the next. And what we're meant to understand is the overall impression of what those scenes mean. We have a woman on a beast representing Rome. Rome is the city that's in control of everything in John's day. Rome is pictured as a woman who is a harlot, or as in the words of the New Revised Standard, a whore. That seems to be very, very strong language to encounter in the Bible, but make no mistake about it. We are meant to understand just how wrong, just how destructive, just how sad it is that people move away from the true worship of God and the, the true uh, experience and, and manifestation of godly life and move to idolatry, to worshiping other things, especially to worshiping ourselves. It is as if, and this is very typical in Old Testament language, it is as if we prostitute ourselves with another God. That's how serious the issue is. This woman on the beast appears uh, in a place where she is seated on many waters, many waters. Now, when we think of Babylon, the city of Babylon was located on the Euphrates River, one of the great rivers of the Middle East. Rome itself is, is in a sense, seated on many waters. It was the, the seagoing commerce that Rome was able to engage, uh, the seagoing economy uh, that made Rome such a superpower in its own day. This woman uh, fornicates, again, deep, deep and, and serious sexual imagery to talk about the fact that, that Rome and everything that Rome represents um, is, is, a, is a prostitution. It's a complete twisting and turning of the beautiful relationship that we're meant to have with God. John says, uh, or the, the Spirit says, that John is going to, to understand a mystery. Now, a mystery is not something that is unknown. A mystery is something that is unknown that now we are going to understand. It's not a puzzle that we're meant to try to figure out, but it's an insight that God gives to his prophets. There is, of course, the beast. The beast represents chaos. The beast represents uh, the Caesars. The beast represents everything about the power of Rome itself that stands over against the Christian church. What's the real issue here? Well, the deep theological issue is that uh, John is saying, on behalf of Christ, that even though it seems that Rome has all the power, 
and that Rome is the way to go. If you want to succeed in this world, just you know, go ahead and worship the Caesars and do things the way of the Romans. John is worried that, that, that Christians are not going to understand, that they don't realize that Rome has already been defeated, that the powers of evil have already been defeated, that when Christ rose from the grave and went victorious into heaven, that was the final, uh, or, or the, we should probably say the most important and the decisive battle uh, between God and evil. And of course, God, God wins that battle. Christians need to see that the final victory, the ultimate victory, is already theirs. Therefore, they should not give in to the power of Rome. They should not give in to the seduction of idolatrous worship of Rome or Rome's gods or of themselves. They should stay true. They should stay faithful, if you will, to the God who made them, the God who loves them, the God who redeems them. That's the ultimate issue here for John. There's a mention of seven kings. They are fallen, they are living, they're yet to come. Clearly, John is referring to some of the more or less contemporary Caesars, the Roman uh, emperors. We don't know specifically who he means. We probably should understand that those people to whom he wrote would understand who John meant. Then he talks about the defeat of evil in uh, verses 12 through 14 and then 15 through 18 uh, of chapter 17. The beast is defeated by the Lamb, capital L, the Lamb of God. The beast then devours the woman. The woman is sitting on the beast, but the beast devours the woman. That's meant to uh, help us understand that evil is self-destructive. Evil kind of implodes in on itself, and all of these creatures that represent the evil of Rome ultimately, in some sense, even defeat themselves. Then we move into chapter 18, and here we have uh, a celebration of the fall of Babylon. In a sense, it's also a lament. We'll talk about what the lament is in a moment. The Old Testament often has poetic uh, uh, sections that celebrate the defeat of God's enemies, the defeat of Israel's enemies. And here we have a celebration of the defeat of Babylon. There is great violence, of course, that's going on uh, and is still in this time period, but we still celebrate the ultimate victory that we already know is ours. There is lament in some sense, because not everything about Rome was evil. There's a lot of things about Rome that were good. There was great music. There was great art. There was, in some sense, the rule of, uh, of law and order. But even the good things that existed in this fundamentally evil empire will be destroyed, which means we're to be sad about that. So how should Christians respond to this fallen city? What should Christians do about the fact that they live in an empire that is ultimately doomed? Now, it still is a, is a very, very uh, uh, vital and strong enemy. It's still very strong and powerful. Should Christians fight against the Roman Empire? Well, that wasn't an option for the Christians. They had no economic power, no, certainly no military power. The only way they could fight was to fight in the same way that Jesus, the Lamb of God, had fought, and that was to sacrifice themselves, to sacrifice by staying true to their profession of faith, staying true to their way of life, even it meant that they might die. That was how they were going to conquer the Roman Empire. 
That's how all Christians ultimately conquer the evil that's in the world. Even though it on the surface seems to destroy us, right? We still stay true to God because God is true to us. And the way of God in the world, the truth about God, the truth about the victory of good over evil, of God over the devil, is, is a trustworthy truth, something to which we should hold on. And so, verse 4, Christians are called to come out of this city. They are called to resist the values, to resist the temptation to go along with the ways of this idolatrous city. And then they are to rejoice, verse 20, they are to rejoice in the hope of God's final judgment over all sin and all evil that leads then to the renewal of all creation. Let's move into chapter 19. Chapter 19 is the beginning of the last major section uh, of this book. Here we have a vision of the transcendent God, of the transcendent Christ, who in heaven and in ultimate cosmic reality rules over all things, even though Rome still continues to do uh, mortal battle, if you will, uh, against the Christians. There is great worship of this transcendent God and Christ. There is worship in heaven. Worship on earth is meant to be a mirror, a reflection of the worship that goes on in heaven. So Christ gives John a vision of the worship that is going on in heaven, and we are meant to worship in the same way, to, to express the truth to proclaim the truth, to sing it, to pray it, uh, in physically gathering simply to be a physical representation of the fact that there is a God in heaven who is truly God, not the God sitting on the throne in Rome. We have this phrase, salvation to God. Uh, the people in heaven are crying out, salvation to God. That's a phrase that says salvation originates in God. God is the source of salvation. God is the hope of salvation, the one who brings salvation to us. Now, as you might imagine, in, in ancient days, as in modern days, the, the Roman Caesars tried to convince the people that, that the salvation of the people, the salvation of Rome, the continuation of the empire was based on the, the skill and ability and wisdom and power of the Caesars, right? So worship the Caesar. Well, that's not what Christians thought. We think that that all the goodness that, that comes to people uh, comes ultimately from God. And so we worship God, not the people who would pretend to be God. And so our worship celebrates the mighty acts of God. Worship is not about us. Worship is about God. You have in this section, chapter 19, the image of marriage, uh, where, where God is, uh, or, or Christ, either God or Jesus Christ, is the groom, and Israel, or the church, is the bride. You see, ancient Israel understood that itself as a people was meant to be in a permanent, completely transparent, loving relationship with God, as, as a bride and groom are meant to have. The church adopted that idea, still thinks of it in that way, that, that Christians, in a sense, are married to Christ. We are bound in an indissoluble union with Christ that is meant to, to be a blessing uh, to us and to other people. Verse 10, uh, you see this kind of side comment, a negative comment about angels. Um, the fact was that in ancient Israel, in modern Israel of the first century, there was this temptation to worship the angels of God. Not God, but the angels of God. 
There's that temptation today. You hear people talk about angels all the time, but, but we're not so much focused on angels. Angels are simply representations or messengers from God. Uh, if you start to worship the angels themselves, then you're not worshiping the God who created even them. As we continue in chapter 19, uh, starting with verse 11 then, we have the beginning of seven visions that are the final events of history. We have the return of Christ. We have this last great battle. We have the binding of Satan. We have the thousand-year reign. We have the defeat of Gog and Magog. We have the last judgment, and then we have the gift of the new Jerusalem. This section begins with a mighty warrior who appears on a white horse. That's, of course, Jesus Christ. Now, he's not like other warriors, right? He conquers evil through dying, not through killing evil initially, but he kills evil through the gift of his life as sacrifice. That's how good overcomes evil, and that's how Christians in the first century are meant to overcome the evil that's in the world, is through their sacrificial living, sometimes even the sacrifice of their lives as they stay true to their witness uh, to Jesus Christ. This great warrior that appears on this white horse has a sword, but the sword is the word of God. It's not a literal sword that cuts things to pieces. It's a sword that cuts through to the truth. It's a sword that, that stands up for the truth of God. In this vision of Christ, I want us to dwell on that for just a moment. This vision of the white horse, right? Horse is a mighty, powerful animal, and this incredible warrior on the horse, this warrior who conquers through his love, this warrior who conquers through his truth, this warrior who conquers through the word of God, this is who Jesus Christ is. We dwell on that image because the, the fact is, is that we do not know, John did not know exactly how everything would play out in history, which king would do what and what would go on. What John knew and what John ultimately saw is that there is a God at the end of all things, the same God who was at the beginning of all things. This God is manifest, he is present in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And so it's vitally important that you and I focus on who is at the end of history, that we focus on who stands at the end, on who ultimately is victorious, that who, that person, is Christ, Jesus, the one that we follow. We're not so much concerned about how the end is going to come. We are concerned with who stands at the end. One of the great mistakes that people have made over the years is on trying to understand the details of exactly what's going to happen when and who's going to be involved. We can't understand that. What we can understand is who is at the end of all history. Now, as we move into further into chapter 19, starting with verse 17, uh, we have this, this battle between the deity and the chaos monster, right? That's another way that evil uh, was personified, is, is describing it as chaos. Remember, God's spirit moved over the chaos of the unruly waters at the beginning of all things to create order and dry land and to create life itself. Well, now chaos itself is going to be defeated. Uh, we have this, this heavenly banquet, right? This heavenly banquet that's pictured, not the, the grisly meal of 
birds picking on on dead bodies, right? The vultures uh, eating the carrion, eating the flesh of the enemies of God. But this great heavenly banquet where all of God's people are being nourished uh, by God's presence. And then moving into chapter 20 very quickly, we have the final binding of Satan. Now, some people thought that, that what, what this vision is about is that Satan is kind of like thrown into eternal jail, right? Uh, or that Satan is, is ultimately simply defeated and killed. Whichever way you look at it, the point is that Satan is put away from any possibility of harming God's creatures, of destroying and thwarting God's plan. Then we have the millennium, this thousand-year reign, and Christians have tried to focus on that thousand-year period and try to decide when it starts, when it ends, all that kind of thing. The whole point of that thousand-year reign, as far as John is concerned, and this vision that he receives, is to talk about the fact that during this time, the church must remain faithful to God for a long time. However long it takes, we don't care because at the end of it, we finally win. At the end of all things, we must remain faithful because God remains faithful to us. And then you have this scene of the last judgment, verses 11 to 15. This is actually the only time in the book of Revelation where the last judgment is pictured, right? We have two books, and I want to end with our focus for just a moment on these two books. There is the book of Deeds. Everything that you've ever done is written down in the book of Deeds. That's meant to say that we're responsible for what we do. God knows what we do or what we do not do. And, and God judges us according to what is in the book of deeds. But there is also the book of life. There are people whose names are written in the book of life. That's about grace. God looks at who we are, but in spite of who we are, God forgives our sin as we come to an understanding of who he is through the sacrifice and the love of Christ. So you have both that, that, that side of life that says we are responsible to God for who we are and what we do, and then we have that great celebration, that magnificent realization of the grace of God who offers us the opportunity to be written into the book of life, life here now, life eternally with God. We have that life as we remain true, as we remain faithful to Jesus the Christ who conquers all things. So live with that promise. Live with that truth today and always. Until next time.